There is no higher form of worship than submitting ourselves to the preaching of the Word of God. And it is my joy to minister to you this morning in such a way. I would like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians. Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And this morning I want to focus on verses 12 through 14. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, giving thanks unto the Father. Obviously, we're stepping away from our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Acts. And I'm doing so this morning because of the Thanksgiving season in which we find ourselves. But before we examine this marvelous passage of Scripture, I would like to give you a brief history lesson of our country. And parents, I would hope that you would share this with your children. Our American heritage is undeniably rooted in the biblical Christian faith of the early pilgrims that first came here. Folks like us, frankly, who were children of the Reformation during the 1500s. And because of their commitment to the five solas of the Reformation, of which you see even here in our sanctuary written up on the walls, and because of their purity of life and their purity of doctrine, unbelievers hated them with a passion and labeled them with a very derisive title, that of Puritans. These Puritans believed that the Church of England was apostate, and indeed it was, and they felt that it was far too familiar with and similar to and even tolerant of the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Rome. And so they wanted to separate themselves from these people. And persecution began to mount from the apostate church of England. And many of these saints fled to Holland to try to find some relief, as well as other areas of perceived safety. But they could find no refuge. So they decided to risk everything and pack their belongings and go to a new land, a new place called America. So having gained some financial background and backing, they joined by they were joined by some other colonists and they board, boarded a ship called the Mayflower in 1620. And they made their way to what is now called the United States and landed at a place called Plymouth, Massachusetts. Now, historical revisionists labor to convince our youth and even our adults these days that our founding fathers of this nation, certainly the pilgrims, really came here for no other reason than to find a new place to start a new life and to hopefully gain some kind of measure of, of financial uh, prosperity and so forth. That they were not really Bible-believing Christians. And I believe this is a claim that is easily refuted in the facts of history on many levels. But certainly if you go to, for example, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and you go to the Pilgrim Hall Museum, you will find on display there four Bibles that were carried over on the Mayflower. 
one belonging to the first governor of that group, a man named William Bradford. And in the museum's displays, especially the Bible of Bradford's, we would read this, quote, This 1592 Geneva Bible belonged to pilgrim William Bradford. It journeyed with him from England to Holland and eventually to Plymouth. The pilgrim separatists used the Geneva Bible. This was a translation with commentary notes in the margin made by English Calvinist refugees living in Switzerland. The official English church strongly disagreed with the Geneva Bible's commentary, end quote. And certainly we see the same kind of hostility towards these beliefs even this day, even in the United States. Concerning the faith of those that he governed, Bradford wrote this, and I quote, They, as the Lord's free people, joined themselves in the fellowship of the gospel to walk in all his ways made known or to be made known unto them. And as I believe you read, even in your bulletin, history records uh, several occasions where the early settlers, along with their Indian neighbors, had times where they gave thanks to Almighty God for his provisions. But a generation after all of that story, of which I'm sure you're at least vaguely familiar, we read about... Another Thanksgiving on June of 1676, another day of Thanksgiving was commissioned by the governing council of Charleston, Massachusetts. And by unanimous vote, they instructed a man named Edward Rawson, the clerk, to proclaim June 29 as a day of Thanksgiving. And the following is a part of that proclamation. And I quote, the council has thought meet, or in other words, fitting, to appoint and set apart the 29th day of this instant, June, as a day of solemn thanksgiving and praise to God for such his goodness and favor, many particulars of which mercy might be instanced, but we doubt not those who are sensible of God's afflictions have been as diligent to espy, or in other words, to watch for him returning to us, and that the Lord may behold us as a people offering praise and thereby glorifying him. The council doth commend it to the respective ministers, elders, and people of this jurisdiction, solemnly and seriously to keep the same, beseeching that being persuaded by the mercies of God, we may all, even this whole people, offer up our bodies and souls as a living and acceptable service unto God by Jesus Christ. End quote. Well, it's amazing to think how God used those early saints to fashion what I believe was once the greatest nation in history, the United States of America. The values of Christianity are woven all through the tapestry of our early history and even on the pages of our Constitution. Yet, sadly, the metastasizing corruption of sin And idolatry and false teaching has now caused, I believe, God to lift his restraining grace and abandon America to the consequences of her iniquity. Today we watch in horror as she descends into an abyss of godlessness. 
Can you imagine, dear friends, how appalled those early pilgrims would be? And even our founding fathers, if they knew that we have even elected, much less tolerated, political leaders that champion the murder of unborn children, even partially born children. Moreover, even champion fully born children who were born as the result of a botched abortion. Can you imagine their thinking about leaders that champion the cause of homosexuality? The theories of evolution that deny the glory that our God deserves for his creation. Can you imagine how appalled they would be if they knew that we have leaders that champion the escalating intolerance of Bible-believing Christians, seeking to marginalize them in every way possible? Can you imagine how they would feel knowing that we have elected officials that champion the philosophies of a one-world government that God so clearly denied in Genesis 7? when he confounded the tongues of the first globalists at the Tower of Babel. Well, none of these should surprise any student of Scripture. I mean, we know, for example, in Daniel 2, as well as in Revelation 13, that a worldwide preoccupation with global unity, with a global economy and government, even a one-world religion, all controlled by the diabolical rule of the Antichrist. All of that is predicted. Indeed, all of these things and many more are predicted to even escalate as the world moves inexorably towards a day of divine reckoning. Yet, despite the moral freefall of our nation, we as believers, citizens of another kingdom, can rejoice with those pilgrims of old. We can rejoice in something far greater than any of the things of this world. We can rejoice in the transforming power of the gospel and the God who has saved us and given us his word and his promises. We can give thanks because our sovereign God still rules over the affairs of man. We can praise God as they did that all of history, even Satan's temporary rule, will one day give rise to unprecedented events of both mercy and divine judgment that will give God glory. And dear friends, all of these fundamentals of our faith are anchored in the bedrock truths that are found in the Apostle Paul's words to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is a passage where we are exhorted to give thanks to the Father for the things that He has done for us. Let me read this passage of Scripture to you and then make some comments on it. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you some context of this passage. Colossae was a thriving city in Phrygia in the Roman province of Asia. It would be modern-day Turkey. 
It had a mixed population of both Jews and Gentiles. And obviously, these folks filtered into the church. Some of them came to truly a saving knowledge of Christ, but many others just came to the church. They were tares amongst the wheat. And they brought a mixture of both Jewish legalism and Gentile mysticism. Now, that's a that's a dangerous soup to mix together. And it caused all kinds of problems in that early church that was founded by Epaphras. And these heresies contained various deceptions that were later included in what was labeled Gnosticism. And you see elements of this even in many of the cults to this day. It was the idea that God is good, but matter is evil. So therefore, Jesus could not be literally God who came in the flesh. They believed that Jesus Christ was merely an emanation descending from God, but certainly was less than God. They taught that only certain individuals could be enlightened, and those were the only ones that could understand the secret ascended knowledge of salvation, knowledge that they believe transcended the Holy Scriptures. And Epaphras was so upset. Can you imagine being the pastor of this church? He was so upset with everything that was going on that he traveled from Colossae to Rome where Paul was in prison to try to find help. So Paul wrote this letter, and this letter is filled with, with great theology, rich theology concerning the deity of Christ, concerning reconciliation and redemption and election and forgiveness and the nature of the church, and on it goes. And the theme of this epistle is literally the glory of Christ. And tucked in the middle of his discourse is a call here to give thanks to the Father, who sent his only begotten son to be a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. To praise our heavenly father who has adopted us as his sons. Now, it's important for you to, to understand, dear friends, that as we look at scripture, we see all through scripture a priority in the prayer life of anyone that is recorded. And that is that God desires us to manifest the same passion for his praise as we do for our petitions. And it's interesting that many times I find even in my prayer life, I don't follow this pattern as much as I should. And perhaps you were the same way. We reflected upon this a little bit last Wednesday night. I said somewhat tongue in cheek that maybe we need to have a prayer meeting one Wednesday night and alternate that with a praise meeting the next Wednesday night to begin to get this in balance. But dear friends, our minds, I believe, are far more captivated by earthly needs than with heavenly praise. Later, it's interesting, in Colossians 4.2, Paul said, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And we know what he wrote in Philippians 4, 6. He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 15 said, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips 
that give thanks to his name. So we come to verses 12 through 14 and we see that Paul has been praying that these believers and certainly every believer since that day would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as we read in verse 10. That would include giving thanks to the Father for three things, and that's what we'll focus on this morning. For our future inheritance, our past deliverance, and our present redemption. What a magnificent pattern, dear friends, for us all to follow in our prayer life. Especially when our hearts are urged by the Spirit of God to overflow, to literally explode with doxologies of praise. First, let's look at our future inheritance. Notice verse 12. We read, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The word qualified in the original language means to make sufficient, to authorize. It denotes conferring a a privilege or an ability upon someone. It's the idea of making someone fit. Now, friends, this is an exhilarating truth, and I want you to grab hold of it this morning. You must understand that as new creatures in Christ, as the word tells us, the old things pass away. We have new longings, a whole new predisposition, a whole new worldview. We have been fitted with a new heart, a new mind, a new song. Frankly, the same attributes as those currently abiding in heaven. Though ours are not fully developed, you might say we are like children. We have been born with all of the essential and appropriate body parts, but we must grow into full maturity. We have been qualified. The Father has qualified us. He has made us sufficient. He has fitted us, if you will, to share in this glorious inheritance. And might I add, there is no need here for the ridiculous notion of the purifying fires of purgatory. The Father has qualified us now. He has made us new creatures in Christ. Our preferences, our longings, all of them are fitted for the joys of heaven, not for earth. In light of that, have you noticed perhaps in your own life that the things of the world are repulsive to you? Have you noticed how deeply offended we are by the things that unbelievers, the unregenerate, would find perfectly acceptable? The other day I was going through a particular area of town and I saw two men embraced and kissing one another. That is horribly offensive to me. And why is that? Because of a work that God has done in my heart, in my mind. And He's given us a new new nature. He's given us the mind of Christ. We have been fitted to exist in a place that is utterly separated from sin. And so because of this qualification here, God causes us to hate what He hates and love what He loves. And certainly the world cannot understand this. And beloved, never forget that we are qualified to inherit the kingdom of God. Now catch this solely because of God's grace alone through Christ alone. 
may we never be deceived and, and may we never allow our praise to be poisoned with some unwarranted pride. You see, we did not make ourselves fit. We did not qualify ourselves here. It is all a work of divine grace. We contributed absolutely nothing to our salvation, so therefore we share none of its glory. Remember what the Word of God tells us about our former condition. For example, in Ephesians 2, we read that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Goes on to say that we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. The Spirit of God tells us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 that we once walked in the futility of our mind, being darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, because of the hardness of our heart. He went on to say that we were callous. We had given ourselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Oh, child of God, please hear this and, and, and let this sink deep into your heart and into your mind. We were once spiritual cadavers. We were once dead and our redemption is therefore all of grace from beginning to end. Were it not for the father's irresistible compelling when he when he drew us to himself, each of us would continue to be to this day. A rotting, stinking, spiritual corpse awaiting eternal wrath. You see, we had no capacity within ourselves to even respond to the gift of the gospel. Apart from the gift of faith through regenerating grace. As I've said before, Christ came to save us. He did not come to help us. And I can think of no greater reason in all of the world... To have our hearts ignite and literally explode in praise than this. Thank you, Father, for making us qualified to share in this inheritance. But let's dwell on the idea further. It says the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Inheritance is a very interesting term in the original language. It literally means a share in the lot. He has made us qualified to share in the lot or the allotted portion. Grammatically, if you look at it in the original language, you will see that the text literally says he has qualified us for the portion of the lot. Or the idea that every believer here has been granted his own individual portion of a total inheritance. That is an absolutely astounding thought to me. Now, this is a clear allusion to something that the Jewish audience of that day would have understood. It was an allusion that reached back to the specific uh, geographical regions given to the individual tribes of Israel in the promised land of Canaan where they received by lot the inheritance that the Lord had given them. 
Now, what is fascinating here, friends, is for us to know that not only has every believer been allotted his own individual portion of this whole inheritance, but the word qualified is in the present tense, indicating that we currently, right now, this very moment, possess this inheritance. Though we will not be able to fully enjoy the full force of our possession until the Lord returns. But it is ours now. I want you to think about this. As you study the scriptures, as you study the doctrine of salvation, you see that we have been granted a possession right now of eternal life. We have been adopted as sons into the family of God. In fact, we're told in 1 John 3 and verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. We are told in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 that we are children of God, heirs also. And it goes on to say, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What an astounding reality. And Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 3, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And in verse 4, he says, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. And Jesus tells us in John 14, 23, that right now every believer has the triune Godhead abiding in them. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, that we have been sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The term pledge, erebon in the original language, is similar to the modern Greek word for engagement ring. And it literally means a guarantee or a down payment. The Holy Spirit is the first installment in our future inheritance. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, that we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. (laughs) Amen. And again, I say amen. And Jesus promised that someday we would inherit the earth. In Matthew 5, verse 5, and during the millennial age, that long-anticipated messianic kingdom, we are told in Revelation 20 and verse 6, that during that time we will rule with Him upon a renovated earth that will be once again returned to the splendor of Eden. My, what, what marvelous truths worthy of our praise. But I want you to notice Yet another gem of truth in this vein. Notice in verse 12, it says the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see, this inheritance obviously is not for anyone and for everyone. It's for the saints. Saints comes from the word hagion, 
we get our word holy from that. It's it's referring to those who have been separated from sin and the world and set apart unto God by God's power. Now, this is in stark contrast to those who are not saints that will not inherit the kingdom. For example, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list this and list some examples of the unrighteous. He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Moreover, will you notice that our inheritance is in light? What a fascinating thought this is. Our inheritance is in light. As we look at Scripture, we see that the kingdom of light is constantly contrasted to the kingdom of darkness. In fact, as we study the Word of God, we see that that light is a figurative expression denoting holiness and purity and truth and wisdom, spiritual sight, happiness, life, and the glorious presence of God. Whereas darkness is used to describe the very opposite. It is used to describe that which is unholy, impure. It's used to describe deception and ignorance and blindness and misery and death and the utter absence of God's glory. In fact, Jesus called hell in Matthew 8, verse 12, outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I am told by medical people that if you put a person in complete, physical, total darkness, that within two weeks they will lose their ability to see. And in about three weeks, they will absolutely lose their mind. I'm reminded of that passage in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, where we read that the God of this world, in this case, the small g referring to Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, that the world is spiritually blind and it is morally insane. It is completely mad with sin. And it is maniacal in its hatred of the living God and His Word. But our inheritance, as we look at this text, is something that is the total opposite of such darkness. As, as we study Scripture, we know that God dwells in unapproachable light. We are told that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. We are told that Christ is the light of man. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We are told in the word that that even the angels of the kingdom of heaven are called angels of light. And Jesus called us sons of light. And Paul said in first Thessalonians five, verse five, you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Now, beloved, is it any wonder why the apostle Paul would exhort us to give thanks to the Father 
who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Beloved, I pray that these staggering truths will, will, will grip your heart with thanksgiving. And might I remind you of yet another precious promise that is related to this that we find in Paul's words in Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. There Paul reminds us that if we study these objective facts about the Word of God, about what God has done for us, about our inheritance and so forth, he calls it the Word of, word of His grace. If we study this, something truly remarkable is going to happen. And that is, he says that this word of grace is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, as we study these glorious truths, you will gain a, a deeper, richer understanding of what God has given you. That's the idea. And it's for this reason Paul prayed for the saints at Ephesus in Ephesians 1 verse 18 that that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, having looked forward to our future inheritance, Paul looks back upon the horrors from which we have been rescued and he asks us to thank the Father for number two, our past deliverance. Verse 13, it says, for he delivered, literally rescued. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. The term domain literally refers to the power, the jurisdiction, the authority, the governing principles under which we operated prior to our conversion. He has delivered us from this domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Transferred literally means to remove from one place and to place in another. You see, what this text tells us, as well as many others, is that when we come to a saving knowledge of Christ and we are delivered from this domain of darkness, we are no longer helpless victims to the power exerted over us through indwelling sin and the empire of Satan and his minions and all of the darkness that that encompasses. He has now transferred us and placed us into the kingdom of light. This is defined by Paul in Romans fourteen seventeen as the kingdom of God. It's one of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, dear friends, this transference here, this deliverance occurred the moment we were born again. The moment we were regenerated. Palingenesia, a compound term, born again. The, the idea of regeneration is that of the supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritual dead, to the spiritually dead. Hallelujah. You know, you, you just have to, to say, oh, Father, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for the mercy that you have shown upon me. That in the darkness of my heart and the darkness of this satanic kingdom, you came along and you lifted me out of that. You rescued, that, you rescued me and you transferred me into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your beloved Son. 
When I meditated upon the power of darkness, I, I was reminded of of just the, the depth and, and the breadth of wickedness in our dark world. Especially having spent just a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks in, in, in Russia, especially in Siberia, and just seeing that dark and oppressive place where almost everyone wears black, where everything is dark and gray, and where there is very, very, very little spiritual life. I think, my, the power of darkness, how evil, how destructive it is beyond our imagination. We see it all around us in the dark age in which we live. Every now and then when I flip through the channels, I'll see some of it in the vile entertainment of some, maybe not all, but, but I would probably say most of the music world that we have where you have these groups that scream deranged and demonic lyrics to pulsating rhythms, glamorizing the most vile forms of debauchery and, and violence. You look sometimes at these people, and I've got people that have come out of that culture, and some of them that are still in it that are friends of mine. You look at their bodies, and they're, they're absolutely emaciated from years of drug and alcohol abuse. And you watch them gyrating the moves of, of sexual immorality to the deafening sounds of dissonance while thousands of frenzied idolaters weary themselves to somehow get to them like the blinded, lust-crazed sodomites wearied themselves to get to Lot's angelic visitors. We see the power of darkness in the halls of academia. I've been there. I've seen it firsthand. I've experienced it. We see it in the halls of government and the sanctuaries of false religions. We look around and we see people by the millions that are alienated from the life of God, as the Scripture says. They've been blinded by Satan and they're in bondage. They live in a domain of deception and death. They, they have no faculties to see the light of truth or even the flames of hell. Spurgeon described it this way, and I quote, Moral darkness exercises its awful spell over the mind of the sinner. Where God is unacknowledged, the mind is void of judgment. Where God is unworshipped, the heart of man becomes a ruin. The chambers of that dilapidated heart are haunted by ghostly fears and degraded superstitions. The dark places of that reprobate mind are tenanted by vile lusts and noxious passions like vermin and reptiles from which in open daylight we turn with disgust, end quote. Dear friends, when you think about that domain of darkness from which we have been delivered, you're just forced to drop down on your knees and say, Oh, thank you, Father. No longer am I a victim to the bondage of Satan and sin and death. I have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Your beloved Son. So we give thanks to the Father for our future inheritance and our past deliverance, but thirdly, for our present redemption. Notice the end of verse 13. He says that He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, literally the Son of His love, and I want to stop there for a moment. Think of the biblical pro progression here. As we look at Scripture, we see that 
that our salvation actually began, as several texts tell us, before time began. We were chosen, according to Ephesians 1, 4, in him before the foundation of the world. In fact, in Romans 8 and verse 30, we read, And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Jesus said in John 6, 44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Jesus also said in John 6, 37, that all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And now here in Colossians 1, we understand that the Father has given this kingdom to the Son of His love or His beloved Son. And because we are united to the Son, to Christ, in faith, we too shall inherit this glorious kingdom. That's why we are called fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. And you see, all of this points to the Father's gift to us. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 14, we see it. In whom we have redemption. I love that term, redemption. It literally means to be completely released based on the payment of a price. Or to deliver by payment of a ransom. In fact, this is the idea behind our English word emancipation. And of course, it's often used of a slave that has been bought out of a marketplace. Now, I want you to notice that he does not say, in whom we will one day hopefully have redemption. That's not what it says. But rather, in whom we have redemption. I remember having a conversation several years back with a prominent Armenian theologian in a local Bible college who said, and I quote, there is no such thing as assurance of salvation. None of us will truly know we are saved until the day we die. And I remember thinking of this text and several others. You know how your mind is immediately flooded with all. It's like, whoa, 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 time out. We need to talk. Dear friends, not according to this text. And I remember I was quick to spit in his soup, reminding him of this text, as well as 1 John 5.13, where we read, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And unfortunately, due to his rabid commitment to Man's free will and self-determination. He continued to eat his poisonous porridge. However, I am convinced that he never enjoyed it as much as he once did. Oh, dear child of God, I want you to grasp this now. What a magnificent statement of redemption and forgiveness and eternal security we have before us. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I ask you, what manner of voodoo exegesis would cause anyone to miss this great promise of eternal salvation? How can you miss this? Moreover, why would Paul exhort believers to give the father thanks 
for qualifying us, for delivering us, for transferring us, if our redemption and our forgiveness of sins was still in question. That begs for relevance to me. And I think rightfully so. Dear friends, we have forgiveness. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is a this is a present reality. It's not a future possibility or a hopeful wish. Again, first Peter one four, speaking of our inheritance, he says it is reserved in heaven for you. And as if that isn't enough, he says, who are protected by the power of God. I would say that's the most powerful protection you can have. Protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Now, beloved, again, I would submit to you, wherein is the rejoicing if our inheritance is uncertain? And if you ask, well, what must I do to make it certain? Many times you will hear, we've just got to hold on to the end. You heard that before? I know some of you have. Yeah, we've just got to hold on to the end. Well, boy, that's comforting. (laughs) So much for grace. I I thought Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Do Do you want me to believe that now it is up to some form of my righteousness to compensate for some inadequate, insufficient atonement? Oh, may it never be. May it never be. Beloved, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The saving work is completed. We are justified on the basis of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us. We are now declared righteous and we stand in grace. That is what the Bible teaches. And don't let anyone tell you differently. When I thought of this, as is often the case, my mind runs to certain hymns that we sing. And I was reminded of the words of the blind hymnist Fanny Crosby when she wrote, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. I'd ask you this morning... How often do you meditate upon this truth? How how often do you think about how that once I was a slave to sin, I, I was once a child of disobedience. I was once one who served my father, the devil. These are all biblical terms. I, I was once under the just wrath of a holy God. But by His grace, I saw the truth of my sin and the Savior, that Jesus paid the price That only he could pay. And he redeemed me by his blood. How often do we drop to our knees and and just just thank the Father and praise the Son for his atoning work. The one who came to give his life a ransom for many. Beloved, this is the present reality of the condition of our souls before a holy God. Because of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In fact, Paul said in Romans 3.24, he said, we are justified, in other words, declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
Beloved, hear it now. We have been freed. We have been emancipated. We have been redeemed from the slavery of sins. Our sins have been forgiven. And it is because, all because of his sovereign grace when in eternity past he chose to set his love upon those whom he would one day save. Those whom he would one day qualify to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Those whom he would one day deliver from the domain of darkness and transfer into the kingdom of his beloved son. Those in whom he would one day redeem and forgive their sins and make them fit for this kingdom beyond their ability to fathom. The 19th century poet Josiah Condor expressed the spirit of these truths that frankly should animate every believer to deeper levels of thanksgiving. Here's what he said, and I quote, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me, hast from the sin that stained me, washed and set me free, and to this end ordained me that I should live to thee. Twas sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none above thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Oh, dear friends, may I challenge you during this Thanksgiving season to make this the pattern of your praise. Will you teach this to your children? Will you meditate upon these truths? Will you take what you've heard today and listen to it again and again until you have it? May each of us who are trophies of God's grace give thanks to the Father for our future inheritance, our past deliverance, and our present redemption. Let's pray together. Father, these glorious truths stagger our mind and cause us to fall on our face in praise and adoration for that which you have done for us. I pray, Lord, that indeed you will cause your word to bear much fruit in our lives. And Lord, I would especially pray for those who do not know you as Savior. Those who really know nothing of the marvels that have been expounded upon today. Lord, how I pray that by your mercy you would be pleased to convict them of their sin. May today be the day that they run to the foot of the cross and see Jesus for who He really is and cry out to You, dear Lord, for mercy, knowing that You will not turn anyone away. May today be the day of their brokenness, so today can be the day of their eternal thanksgiving. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.